Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. This is Carla Unseth with Building a Bridge to God's Word. Today, in our survey of the Old Testament, we are going to get into a part of the Old Testament that I find really fascinating. And this is in large part because even though I grew up as a Christian and read through the Bible on my own multiple times, I somehow never caught this part of the story until I actually went to Bible college and did a survey class of the Old Testament. It really made a lot of connections in my mind that I'd never made before. And I think that it's one of those sections that also helps us to move from seeing the Old Testament as this collection of stories with morals and heroes into understanding that the Old Testament is really one big story that's retelling this history of God's redemptive plan. So this is the part of the story where Israel returns from captivity. So just to give you some historical context, we talked, of course, about how Israel split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then Israel, the northern kingdom, was captured by Assyria. The people were deported. Then Assyria was overtaken by Babylon. And Babylon also conquered Judah and deported some of the people from Judah as well. And so the Israelites lived in exile for 70 years, as was prophesied. We saw some of those prophecies, but then changes started to happen. And that's what we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. They came back in three waves with three different leaders and each group had a particular purpose for coming back. And so this doesn't mean that all the Jews came back. It was just these three groups. It wasn't all of the nation of Israel. So the first leader that came back was Zerubbabel, and his story is found in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. He came back with the intention of rebuilding the temple. He was commissioned by King Cyrus of Persia, and he was in the line of King David, so he had some authority within the Jewish community, as well as being a leader in Persia. So the next group of people came back under Ezra. That was actually about 100 years after Zerubbabel. And his story is found in Ezra 7 through 10. He was in the line of Aaron, so he was able to serve as a high priest, and he returned to Jerusalem to teach the Torah to the people and to really rebuild the religious community. So then the third group of people came back under Nehemiah. His story is in the book of Nehemiah. And he didn't have any particular Jewish standing that I know of, but he was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia. And he heard that the walls of Jerusalem had never been rebuilt. So he asked permission and went back to rebuild the walls. And he came back about 10 years after Ezra. So he and Ezra were contemporaries. When each of these leaders comes back, there's so much anticipation that goes with them. It's like they're saying, now surely God is fulfilling his promise. Now Israel will be saved, right? And it's interesting because in each of these stories, there's hope and there's joy, 
but it's mixed with sadness and sometimes even anger. So I want to get just a little bit deeper into them. So let's look back again at Zerubbabel, the first wave of people that came back. And they really came back with great hope and expectation that when the temple's rebuilt, God will be with them again. So first, the first thing that happens, the foundation is laid, they celebrate. But the older people among them cry and mourn because they can clearly see that this temple is not nearly what it was in Solomon's time. So there's this other kind of strange thing that happens, and that's the people who are living in the area, who are Samaritans, come and ask if they can help. Can they help rebuild the temple? And Zerubbabel forcefully rejects them. This has always seemed kind of incongruous to me. Why wouldn't they want this help? Why wouldn't they want to accept more people into God's community? And throughout the Old Testament, especially when you look at the prophets, there seems to be this dream of a new Jerusalem which blesses all the people of the world. But I also think that the Jews hadn't quite made this connection. They came back from exile. They're hoping to start over, to really lean in, follow the covenant, make no mistakes. And they were really afraid of falling back into idolatry. So rather than bringing people in and being the priests to the nations, they, they were shutting people out in the name of being holy and holiness. So there's something there. It seems like this return from exile hasn't yet solved the main problem. It hasn't solved the sin problem. And the result of their refusal to let the other people help is that the rebuilding of the temple actually stopped. There was so much opposition. They stopped rebuilding the temple for 16 years. No work happened at all on the temple. Um, but they did spend that time building houses and beginning a new life back in Jerusalem. But after 16 years, two prophets came onto the scene who really challenged the Israelites. And the first was Haggai. And he confronted the people with the fact that they're putting themselves before God, essentially, by building their own houses, but leaving God's house in ruin. He really challenged them to see God's kingdom as more important than themselves, more important than their own houses, and to return to working on the temple. And it wasn't all challenge. He also really encourages them with a picture of this future messianic kingdom that Again, he says, God will send a Messiah. He will send someone who will establish his kingdom. He'll defeat evil and he will make Israel a place of hope for all people. The prophet Zechariah spoke around the same time. He also challenged the people, but his message came through dreams. So it's a little weird reading his book and sometimes can be hard to understand. But his main point is, that if the people want the messianic kingdom to come, they have to be the sort of people that will bring in the messianic kingdom, if that makes sense. It's sort of like act in the way that you want it to be. Like if you want the messianic kingdom to come, you need to be living in the right way. You need to be fulfilling the covenant and following God. Another interesting thing about Zechariah is that there is a prophecy of the Messiah riding on a donkey. So Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I think this is interesting because here again we see he will proclaim peace to the nations. So even at this time, even after they send these people away, here's a prophet saying it's not about ethnic purity, but it's about holiness. Okay, so now let's take a second look at the story of Ezra. And again, we have this mixture of hope and sadness. So Ezra and the people with him go back with high hopes to bring reform and to teach people God's law. And they show amazing faith when they decide rather than asking the king for an armed guard, an armed escort, they, they just pray for protection on the way back and God does protect them. But they get to Jerusalem and they discover that some of the Israelites have married foreign wives, which is against God's law. And they're very upset about this, upset to see that they have broken the covenant faithfulness. So one of the leaders suggests that the way to solve this problem is to send away all the foreign women and children. And that's what they decide to do. So to be honest, this has always seemed kind of strange to me. And I feel like this is where the sadness, the sad side of it comes in, especially coming from the perspective of a woman. So in that society, a woman who was abandoned by her, her husband really had nothing, had very little recourse. So sending them away was really damaging to these people, to these women. And I just have wondered, would God really command them to just send their wives away? So I've heard two responses to this. And first, so the first response is that God didn't actually command it. And in, in fact, it's just what the leaders decided on their own. I mean, they did pray, but it doesn't say God told them to do this. Instead, they come up with this own idea. And there's other places in the Bible where it says that God hates divorce. Of course, one that we all know is Malachi 2.16. So they're really implementing their own solution. It's not a God-ordained solution. It doesn't reflect God's desire for Israel and for the way people should treat their wives and even for Israel as a nation that brings other people to him. But the second response, which counters this response, says that, well, first of all, there were times in the Torah where divorce was allowed. And second of all, these women were probably leading the Israelites into idolatry, which meant that staying with them was a worse problem than divorcing them. It would, it would cause greater sin. And a lot of people who use this argument add that there's a good chance these women were given the opportunity to become Israelites and to choose to follow the Israelite God. And instead they didn't, they chose not to. So I don't really know what's the correct view here. I think that's something you'll have to decide for yourself. But in either case, you can see that it's a really sad anticlimax. Rather than Israel as a place of peace and joy and service to God, we see people struggling to honor God and their choices are leading to great pain in the community. When we move on to Nehemiah then, we again see joy mixed with pain. So Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And again, his story shows amazing faith. 
as he asks the Persian king for help and it's given to him. When he does go back to Jerusalem, they're able to rebuild the walls in just 52 days. And following that is a huge celebration where they read the Torah, they confess their sins corporately, and then they have a huge celebration and feast, and they celebrate some of the, the feast days that they've missed throughout the year. But after that, Nehemiah returns to Persia, goes back to serve the king. If you remember, he's the cupbearer for the king. And then eventually he comes back and he finds things in a shambles. The priests have allowed someone who doesn't even follow God to have a room in the temple, which desecrates the temple. There's people working on the Sabbath. Nobody's tithing, so the, the temple system is falling apart. And people are again intermarrying with foreign women. So we have this huge sadness and Nehemiah goes out in anger to try to solve these problems. He even goes out, he pulls out people's hair of these men who have intermarried with foreign women. So he does make changes and, and bring people back to following the Torah, but it's done out of this anger. And it just seems strange that that would be the right way to do things. So what is going on? I think the point to all this strangeness is that the sin problem has not been solved. So the Jews were back in Israel. They're back working toward covenant faithfulness. And that's good. That's really good. But ultimately, the problem had not been solved. That means that they easily slipped back into unfaithfulness. So we're here at the end and we're still waiting for a solution to the deeper problem of sin and our broken relationship with God. As the Old Testament ends, we have one more prophet, and that is a prophet Malachi. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. He was also the last prophet in Israel. He spoke about a hundred years after the Israelites returned from exile. And his book is a series of disputes between God and Israel, where God actually points out his love for Israel and contrasts it with their unfaithfulness, and then Israel responds by defending its actions. So it's interesting because this book is the book where the, this teaching on divorce is found, Malachi 2.16, that we mentioned before. And here, if you look at Malachi, the context is God talking about how Israel has been unfaithful to their covenant with him by turning to other gods, and this is reflected by the fact that they're also unfaithful to their wives. So you might have heard one translation of Malachi 2.16 where it says, I hate divorce. And actually, that translation's been debated. So now current scholarships suggest that it should really be like this. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord God Almighty. So this verse kind of shows us that what God hates is the breaking of the covenant. And that is violence to those who are held under the covenant. And that applies in the marriage relationship. And it also applies in the Israelites' covenant with the Lord. But Malachi ends by promising that the Messiah will come. And saying that the righteous will be blessed at last when the Messiah comes. So the very last words of the Old Testament are Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So this is the end of the Old Testament, and it is really wrapping up everything that has been said. Remember the law. And also, I will send a prophet to you, and that, that's the Messiah. So look for the one to come. Look for the one who will solve the sin problem forever. So that is how the Old Testament ends. In the overall storyline of the Bible, we only have building tension so far. We're still wondering, how will the sin problem be solved? What is God's plan? We haven't reached the climax of the story. And through this time, we've seen a lot of human attempts to solve the problem that haven't worked, but we've also seen God's plan slowly unfolding. And it is coming. When we open the New Testament, we will reach that climax in the story. We'll see how God solves the sin problem. But we're not quite there yet. I actually want to look at the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because how do we get from Israel rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, still lots of problems following the Torah, and even just reclaiming the land after, all, after their time in exile. So how do we get from there to this sort of robust religious culture of Jesus' day? What happens in that time? So we'll look at those 400 years of silence from God and see what was happening with the Jewish people between the Old and New Testament time. So thank you for joining us today on Building a Bridge to God's Word, and I hope you'll join us again next time. <music>